Good evening. Uh, thank you for those kind words. I'll uh, try to be worthy of uh, being chairman is, is an extraordinary honor and a pleasure. And like anything else, it has its administrative duties. And and the one thing that I've uh, has been left to me is that I still insist on writing my own speeches. So um, about six this morning, the speech felt good. Uh, by by nine, it didn't. And and about four in the afternoon, I added some things that needed to be in here, including about the uh, collaborative. Um, but with bifocals, I'm not, I'm not sure I can read my handwriting. So if, if something seems ill-informed, no, on the paper, it's quite wise. It's just I could not access those words. Um, but, uh, but thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, and, uh, and thank you for your roles in this community, uh, which is to say in this nation. And I, I particularly want to say what a, what a pleasure to join you at the Maine Historical Society, uh, which my colleague and I have been uh, touring today. And we had a, a wonderful time there. And the National Endowment for the Humanities has awarded $1.6 million to the Historical Society. And if you go in this room, I think you'll understand why. And I don't want to do too many asides, but could we just have the staff members, the advisors to the exhibition, others that might be here that, uh, that raise their hands just so we might uh, know them and acknowledge their work? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you in particular for, for bringing your First Nation wisdom to the to that, and uh, and the basket weaving is, is just rather extraordinary. So thank you. Uh, also, we should pause and affirm your Congressman Pingree. Uh, uh, you, you know the strength of the representation you have in the House, in the Senate, and one thing I can say about the Congresswoman is uh, she and her staff members ask probing questions. This is somebody who believes deeply in our mission, wants to know what we're doing, wants to make sure that we're being good stewards of our tax dollars, um, and, and allows us to move beyond kind of a, a formal reporting to, to really talk about what do we want to achieve together. And so to have that kind of dialogue, uh, uh, for for her to have the standing that carries across the House to the Senate, it carries across party lines, that means a great deal. It's rare and it's noted, and thank you. Uh, and also, uh, I, I certainly want to acknowledge our, our host, our partner, uh, the State Humanities Council, its staff and its board members. And and Hayden, uh, the time with you has, has been great. Um, I hope those who don't know Hayden Anderson will get to get to know him. And and uh, you really, I don't think, could have the bicentennial you're having in this state, not just without the council, but without his leadership. And, and I see that in conversations with people in the public and certainly with his board. And to give you a, a sense of our agency's support and how the state councils play into that, over the last 10 years, the NEH has awarded 77 grants to the state. And that's in the last 10 years totaling $14 million, of which $9.7 million is through the council. So we are about on a year 60, 65% of their budget. And they, and, and I'm proud to say that because that means that our federal dollars 
uh, are coming in and they have the discernment to make a difference on the local level, to be impactful on the local level that we might not be able to do. So I'm proud of that. And the, and the other thing, I'm uh, when I looked at the funding overall from the agency, we've awarded about $52 million. We're started in 1965. So as you do the math, in the last decade, our funding percentage dollar-wise is about 300% higher. That says something about your congressional leadership. It says something about your council. And it says something about your cultural sector that you're coming in. And so uh, being from uh, uh, Mississippi, uh, my own, you know, rural state myself, I think sometimes we don't always come forward. And I can tell you, if you come forward with the ideas, you work with our staff, I think you're going to see this kind of return. Uh, and you know uh, the value of the NEH for any number of reasons, of course. But I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge my immediate predecessor, Bro Adams. Many of y'all uh, knew Bro as the president of Colby College. And uh, uh, one of uh, the nice pleasures, if we have a grant or, or something that comes out that he particularly likes, he'll, he'll drop me a note immediately. You know, he clearly is getting the, you know, the updates. And uh, so uh, – that's another special uh, tie here. It's been nice to meet some of the Colby faculty during my visit. Um, and lastly, uh, Maine is going to continue its link through a new national council member. These are Senate-confirmed positions. They serve for six years, and that is Jean Yarbrough, and, and she's at Bowdoin, and she brought some of her colleagues as well as colleagues from two other universities to meet with us. And uh, so we're, we're glad of that. And she's a professor of the social sciences there. And uh, and and lastly, on a personal note, um, I, I would be remiss, though, I, in the room. I'm not sure I can find her with these glasses. But my my colleague, uh, Felicia Knight, uh, who a lot of you know, is a long term television anchor here, Felicia and Toll. And uh, she was a friend dating back uh to my NEA, well, of course, there you are. Yeah, to my NEA, NEA, uh, NEA years and uh, uh, under Chairman Joya. And uh, uh, we were lucky enough to hire away from Senator Collins, and we were even more lucky that uh, the senator forgave us. Uh, so uh, she was a great colleague um, when I was um, rather green, I think it's fair to say. Uh, so again, since arriving here, I've met with uh, faculty from from Colby, from the University of Maine, from Bowdoin. I began the day uh, with my colleagues and others at the Portland Public Library, and which is where I think we should all begin our day. And um, we had a wonderful tour at the Maine State Museum, and of course uh, here, and we met with uh, state cultural leaders, state legislators, others. And then uh, tomorrow we'll be at the MAP Library and also the Portland Museum of Art. So this is a start of a larger conversation, and I look forward uh, to the next visit as well. And I think what's left of my southern accent probably establishes that I'm not uh, from around here. But during my magazine career, I actually had the uh, the pleasure of editing and publishing a number of main authors uh, in recent years. So that was Stephen King, Elizabeth Strout, um, part-time residents, my friend Ann Beattie, uh, and Roxana Robinson. And, of course, uh, E.B. White's uh, book on style taught me how grammar is properly practiced. Uh, so, so I say that to, uh, to say that we might be cousins of a sort. And so, uh, about tonight's address, uh, probably nearly 2,000 years ago, 
the Roman historian Tatticus stated, the chief function of history is to ensure the commemoration of the virtuous. Now he continues, and this is a fairly Latinate translation I noticed, and the other responsibility of history being to set before base utterance, indeed, the fear of the condemnation or prosperity. Essentially what that cooks down to is what we used to say in medicine, right? First do no harm. Do good. First do no harm. And what goes for the practice of medicine goes for the act of official commemoration and for the creation of monuments in particular. Public monuments are not an occasion for score settling. They are not an exercise on following the flavor of the day, as they must speak to both their historic moment and the future to come. They are always an opportunity for putting down a marker about what matters and why and who matters and why. They can open up overdue conversations and point us as a society in a corrective direction. This is both their strength and their responsibility and on occasion their literal downfall. While I rarely engage in absolutes, I would argue that almost every, most every monument in this nation that has stood the test of time had the core elements of its success embedded at its creation. It either included the entire community at creation, or at least valued those voices at creation, or was sufficiently universal, like the Statue of Liberty and the Lincoln Memorial, that each of us could locate ourselves in its visual narrative generation after generation. When a work of art is ahead of its time, we must be patient while it does its work upon us. This is not just true of monuments, by the way. Remember, for example, about a little more than a century and a score ago, a riot accompanied the first performance in Paris of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. The same is true in literature and other fields of the arts and the humanities. In our own lifetime, the Vietnam War Memorial is one of the most important and significant examples of this fact. It was called in the media, quote, a black gash in the earth, unquote. Representational art of soldiers with arms supporting each other had to be added as a compromise. The design competition that selected the young, unknown Maya Lin, was funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, which drew the federal agency into the storm. The endowment, of course, was on the right side of history. But when you are in the midst of the storm, trying to keep your agency alive and well. Such facts are little comfort. I know this from experience. The Vietnam War Memorial did not include a public survey of its direct subjects, those in uniform and their families, yet it has come to speak so well to a nation torn in need of healing. Likewise, the Statue of Liberty was created without a survey of the public, Indeed, that this national symbol was created by another nation, as we all know. Artistic visions overcome this limitation on occasion, but they are the exceptions. My native South, with its Confederate monuments and town squares and on university campuses, we are struggling with the consequences of the lack of an authentic questioning at the time of creation 
of what stories should be told and by whom and for whom and to what end. We are finding ourselves as a nation pulled in so many directions at once. There are those that are mounting a defiant resistance to change, and they are being joined by those who rightfully fear an erasure of history. And on the other side are those who rightfully argue that all people should be able to see their experience in public works, or at least, at the very least, not to see their suppression. And I'll say here on another bicentennial, lest I forget to add this, I was at the bicentennial in Mississippi, and it snowed that day and was in the fall, and it seemed that something had to freeze over before this day would come. <laughs> and um, I was on that stage, our U.S. senators were there, governor was there, uh, uh, Marley Evers was there. So the Bicentennial of Mississippi, they put up a bond issue and private funds, and they raised $100 million for twin museums, the most that ever went into any structure in the state with government funding, except for the U.S. Uh, state capital, rather. And uh, Merle Evers rose to speak. She was in her 80s. It was a freezing cold day. And uh, when she agreed to loan things from her family there, everybody said, okay, we'll do it too. We believe in this endeavor. And we were a few miles from where Megar Evers was assassinated in her driveway with her children in the house. She was in the house. And she said, this is an act of atonement, the building of this museum. And I think sometimes we forget what cultural space can be. An act of atonement. It's a very precise word. It's, they're not saying it's a mistake. It's an apology. Atonement is actually a, a religious word. It means an actual sin was created. Not a mistake, not an oversight, but a sin. And an atonement is something you do. And I appreciated that she brought that sacredness into it. We, again, have that sense here. Uh, uh, particularly when we're talking about a sovereign nation. And uh, so we should not miss the opportunities in our bicentennials, in our, our semi-quincentennials, to have conversations at that level. And it's not about the dollar amount either. Uh, and it's not about the size of the organization either. And if you think you know where you are on this continuum between those that are defiant and, the, and those uh, that uh, – that want everything to be expressed in public. If you think you know exactly where you are in this continuum, then I would caution that it is not as easy a manner as one would think. I remember, for example, going alone across Eastern Europe in my early 20s and coming finally to Poland in the death camps at Auschwitz and seeing a room stacked high with human hair and another with eyeglasses drove home the horror of, last, of mass murder. The camps stand so that we may never look away. But here in America, after the Amish schoolhouse shooting some years back, they decided to tear down the structure where it happened. They decided to have a formal time of public forgiveness and to remove this evil from their presence. They literally let the soil itself be healed and cleansed. Is the first example one of testifying. Is the second one of historic erasure? I would say no. They are not actually polar opposites. Rather, they are both examples of a community authentically involved in deciding how to best reflect its own history. One chose to have a history naked to the eye. The other chose to have a history hidden from sight, 
but both carry the story in their hearts. Both remember in a manner that is authentic to themselves and that communicates a core message to others. Yes, commemoration means to remember, but there are many ways to remember. Again, the problem with monuments that we are struggling with across this nation are rooted in the facts of exclusion at the time of creation, compounded by a failure to provide a balanced interpretive education then or now. As Maine looks upon its bicentennial, it is a healthy time to reflect on what commemoration means to this state and its full diversity, from the first people to the newest immigrants. And I'm particularly pleased of those opportunities you're already taking to marry local stories to national ones. NEH has funded the 19th Amendment documentary that will be airing on PBS. And, and again, as we've heard in Maine, you have the Suffrage Centennial Collaborative, uh, which is also sharing a local story of that moment, of that moment. And, in terms of noting where our agency has been in that, I'm so proud to say we have given two grants to the State Humanities Council, totaling $130,000 for its support of bicentennial activities, varying from a, a, a focus on the, uh, on the formation of the international border with Canada, as well as the uh, Wabanaki people and telling their story in a more complete and comprehensive manner. We also awarded $100,000 to the University of Maine at Augusta for 16 humanities discussions exploring the state's artistic and literary heritage. With this trip of May, uh, to Maine, I'm coming to the end of a personal journey, too. Some two, two and a half years ago, I attended the 150th anniversary of statehood in Nebraska. I was uh, acting chairman of the agency at the time. And I decided then that I wanted to offer a chairman's grant for their efforts. And we looked at every state going through a bicentennial. We offered a chairman's grant to each one and for the state council to define what they would like us to support. And so those uh, states that are having the bicentennial include, included my own native state of Mississippi, of course, Alabama, since that was one territory, and Illinois, the, st uh, the state of the Great Migration northward out of the Jim Crow South to the promised land of Chicago. And together, these three states mark our country at its southwestern, northwestern edges. And Maine, of course, marks that uh, northeastern boundary. So again, that was the end of America, as it were. And, and how fitting it is for this eastern marker to be the land of the people of the dawn. How fitting that the morning sun will find your harbors and your homes and your white pines first on the 250th of the semi-quincentennial in the year 2026. These statehood grants have a collective value too as their programming represents at the very least their dry run at that forthcoming semi-quincentennial of our nation's founding. And I'm proud to state that the National Endowment for the Humanities has been particularly commended by the congressionally uh, created U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission, uh, which uh, is looking at our existing grants as a model and are also have complemented our forethought uh, for developing new grants. And indeed, we submitted our uh, proposal to them this week, and they will be sending it to the White House uh, next month, I believe. And the the NEH is steadfastly committed to providing the American people with the historical knowledge, 
cultural resources and educational tools necessary to observe these anniversaries. And when we think of that, we want to reclaim, and I don't even know if it's reclaimed so much remind us that at our most fraught moments, and we certainly know that there are fraught moments. We know there are hard stories to tell. But remember where Lincoln was on that. He rightfully called our nation the last best hope of Earth. And uh, he was right. And I believe that deeply. My colleagues believe that. Um, and so we are f- committed to funding projects to promote a deeper understanding of American history and culture and that advance civics, education, and knowledge of our core principles of government. We see our duty is not merely preserving artifacts or underwriting research or presenting exhibitions and films, but it's a nearly sacred duty of pointing the way for the next generation of, of Americans so they too can live meaningful, impactful, fulfilling lives. In 2018, NEH recreated, restructured our challenge grants to focus on infrastructure projects. Often infrastructure means bricks and mortar construction projects, and we're happy to see one of our 2019 grantees today, uh, earlier. And our, our agency is happy, of course, to support these bricks and mortar projects, uh, and to be a catalytic investor in public-private partnerships. But when you think of your state's cultural infrastructure, think beyond buildings to think about what's inside them or what should be inside them. Uh, we were having dinner last night, and, and somebody noted that one thing that's inside at Bowdoin, I don't think widely known, is a letter from Phyllis Whitley to James Bowden. And uh, to think about what it would mean to be a student in the state and to, and to see that letter to grapple with the complexity of her legacy, a legacy that is that is always under discussion. And like all our legacies, a complicated one. Our nation's cultural infrastructure is as vast as the Library of Congress, and it is as small as an unopened letter. When I contemplated awarding some 800 applications a year, nearly $130 million of our budget, it is easy to get lost. It is easy to remember the big grants, the multi-night documentaries watched by millions, the Pulitzer Prizes. So often I try to go small. Last year, one of our program officers helped me to do just that by highlighting our preservation and access grant to the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in Indianapolis. She mentioned in passing an unopened letter in the Vonnegut archive. Here's the history of that letter, or a bit of it. Having dropped out of college to go to World War II, the 22-year-old Kurt Vonnegut was captured at the Battle of the Bulge. As a prisoner of war, he was taken to the German city of Dresden. Around this time, his father wrote him a letter from the States, wrote him from Indiana. And eventually, the letter came back to the family with the word missing, informally written across the address in ink, handwritten. That word missing in all caps. Imagine the anguish of that family. If you recall the city of Dresden during that war, it is likely because you know the Allies firebombed it in 1945. Bombed it on the day before Valentine's, on Valentine's Day, on the day after. To give you a scale of that air raid, we hear air raid, and I don't know if we get it, 1,300 aircraft participated in that bombing. 
The estimate of those killed is varied from 10,000 to 250,000. Vonnegut survived in a meat locker of a subterranean slaughterhouse. That's where most of the POWs lived when they weren't on the work crews. In a wartime letter to his family uh, that the Red Cross kept, uh, Vonnegut described what happened afterwards. He said, after the raid, quote, we were put to work carrying corpses from the air raid shelters, women, children, old men, dead from concussion, fire, suffocation. Civilians cursed us and threw rocks as we carried bodies to huge funeral pyres in the city. Now, it bears noting that as we read letters from citizens uh, such as him, I could give you any number of books we funded our agency from citizens who were liberated by those same Allied troops from death camps, among others. And notable NEH projects have made exactly that comprehensive point. And after the war, Vonnegut found his natural gift, of course, of writing. And his autobiographical anti-war classic, Slaughterhouse Five, came out in 1969 during the height of the Vietnam War. And I think that makes a great deal of sense. And when the novel reaches the bombing of Dresden, Vonnegut writes that the narrator gets unstuck in time. That's his phrase, unstuck in time. And essentially, the order of events is flipped. The bombs aren't dropped. They rise from the ground. And he sustains this this narrative at a great length. He describes the aerial attack in reverse sequence thus. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bay doors exerted a miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires, gathered them into steel uh, containers, and lifted the containers into the belly of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks. The Germans below had miraculous devices of their own, which were long steel tubes. They used them to suck more fragments from the crewmen and planes. There, but there were still some wounded Americans, though, and some of the bombers were bad repair. Over France, though, the German fighters came up again, made everything and everyone good as new. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating night and day, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them into the ground, to hide them cleverly, so that they would never hurt anyone again. That is what Emily Dickinson calls telling all the truth, but telling it slant. There are some stories too difficult to go at directly. And I think for a lot of us, that's related to the treatment of indigenous people on our land, our collective land, our nation, as it is today. Vonnegut the soldier and Vonnegut the writer knew this, that too many stories are too hard to go at directly. And worse, he knew that sometimes we don't ever tell the stories at all. Considering all the anguish in this and other passages, even decades after his military service, it is not surprising that Kurt Vonnegut could not open his father's letter when he returned from the war. He couldn't open it the first week or the next week or the next one or the one after that. He could not open it after his father died. He could not open it after his own children were born. 
He could not after his novel was published. Kurt Vonnegut died at age 84, and he never opened a letter from his father, and his family never opened it either. So with NEH funding, the unopened letter sits beneath a glass case in Indianapolis, Indiana, and now high school students write about what they think might be in the letter. Yes, as a historian Jim Grossman says, everything has a history. Someone printed that envelope, and someone designed that stamp for the U.S. government, and someone flew that stamped letter to Europe, and someone carried it across the killing fields, and someone else brought it to a stopping point, wrote down the news missing, and sent it back in another direction, a reversal akin to Vonnegut's literary reversal. And I think of this letter... And I think of all the people here in Maine who welcomed our nation's troops back from Iraq and Afghanistan and Bangor at your airports, welcomed them back with hugs and coffee, with kindness. And I think here among you of the great continuity from the revolution for independence to this very hour. Friends, teaching history and civics and ethics is essential. It is not hard but it is not easy. It is mostly about researching the facts, finding a through line, shaping a narrative, and staying with it, even when it seems like no one else is listening on the other side of the room. Having gone across the country the last two and a half years, having seen the value of the humanities work constantly, I can attest that someone is always listening. The humanities are not a luxury. They are not frivolous, they are not divisive. Rather, the humanities are what bind us together in our common journey, especially in those times when the better angels of our nature, to use Lincoln's words, seem so far away. So what about the unopened letters in your own community, in your own time and place, maybe indeed in your own life? Some letters, as we have seen, draw their power from remaining unopened. Others gather strength in their telling. Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter in 1816 that stays with me in my chairmanship, often guides me. And he was such a flawed vessel for delivering this wisdom, but we are all rather flawed in our wisdom. And he wrote, a nation that expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization expects what never was and will never be. By and large, the humanities are about writing and opening and reading and preserving and presenting and interpreting such letters. For more than two centuries, we as a people and a government have done such, as with the Thomas Jefferson letter, but we have not, as a people or a nation, done enough to embody this message. Now, in April of last year, I had the great honor of being unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate as the 11th chairman of the NEH. And the next morning, I delivered the annual luncheon address at the American Council of Learned Societies. And there I spoke about optimism. I want to close here tonight on this subject, as my belief in the importance of optimism has only grown in this position. And I want to say, of course, I read the same articles you do about the decline of students majoring in history and literature and other humanities fields. I see the same research about the decline of the liberal arts and hence the decline of a certain understanding about the world and the history of the world. 
I know that trend lines can be depressing, and yet I'm an optimist. I worry about what has been lost, de-emphasized, or ignored in our communities and on our campuses and throughout our culture, such as civility itself. And I worry about our capacity to bring it back, and yet I'm an optimist. With eyes wide open, with a sense of realism, with historical understanding, I believe that we must do everything we can to commit ourselves to optimism, not merely for ourselves, but for those who come next, so again, that they may have the meaningful, fulfilling, impactful lives I spoke of. I have been long in all of Reinhold Niebuhr as a theologian, as a witness, as a citizen of the highest order. And rereading his work, I came across a passage in his essay, Optimism, Pessimism, and Religious Faith. And Niebuhr recalls, he discusses what he calls, quote, the self-destruction of modern optimism. He's writing in the 30s between the war, and he's already talking about the self-destruction of modern optimism. And he says, quote, history does not move forward without catastrophe. Happiness is not guaranteed by the multiplication of physical comforts. Social harmony is not easily created by more intelligence, and human nature is not as good or as harmless as had been supposed. Those are sobering words. I, I believe he hits the mark here. And yet, how many of us in this room have optimism precisely because of humanists such as Niebuhr, because of citizens such as Niebuhr, because of books such as his books? Reviewing the Library of America's collection of Niebuhr, the scholar Ronald Stone said that this particular essay represented, quote, penultimate pessimism and ultimate optimism. I like that phrasing. May we always restrict our pessimism to the penultimate position. Think again for a moment upon the letters that generations of Americans cast into the abyss of war. Every writer of letters, every reader of letters, every preserver of letters is an optimist. Every one of these acts is a statement that there is a future you want to inform and enlighten and educate in some way large or small. It is all of that and so much more. It's an act of love, of longing, of fear, of anger, of sorrow, even rage. But above all, it is an act of hope, an act of faith. So friends, as I said, I am an optimist have always been an optimist, will always be one. Every grant maker is at heart an optimist. And because you are here in this room on this night for this reason, I cannot help but think, in spite of the weight of history, you are an optimist too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.